Hello and welcome to F1 Into the Barrier. I'm George Close. And I'm Ben Harker. We are crashing into all things Formula 1 for this 2021 season. Is Toto Wolf using Jedi mind tricks to control the FIA? Are Aston Martin a Korma or a Biryani? And where does Botta stand in the Rock Paper Scissors Championship? And we want you, our marshals, to get involved in the discussion too. So make sure you follow us at F1 Into the Barrier on all social media platforms. So George, you touched on in the Portugal review that we'd see more overtakes. Did the track live up to your expectations or were you slightly disappointed with the number of overtakes going on this race? I was slightly over-optimistic about what the changes to Turn 10 could bring to Barcelona, but we still saw some good overtakes. Most of them were still DRS-assisted, but that didn't take away from some of the skill on show, with Perez's overtake on Ricardo particularly springing to mind. What did you think about the on-track action and that wheel-to-wheel racing? It was like an orchestra coming to a crescendo. It was all building up very nicely, and it all happened right at the last moment. So we saw the fight for 10th spot where Alonso was holding it for a while, and somehow he dropped down to 17th and we saw the battles when Bottas was trying to get through the bat markers and trying to get the blue flags flown and there was just too much going on track for the last couple of laps and I really struggled to keep up with it. The rest of the race it was the classic Spain conundrum really difficult to pass and even when you had such an overspeed in the car like Lewis still so difficult to get past. I was sat on the edge of my seat. I remember in that early phase of the Grand Prix, Lewis just couldn't quite get DRS. He was always maybe 1.005 seconds away because Max was cleverly deploying his energy and just holding on. Where do you think Mercedes managed to snook a Red Bull? Why were they able to pull that double pit stop strategy over Max and ultimately get the win? It all came down to qualifying for me. I remember messaging you about Mercedes. Why had they gone on softs for Q2? It meant that they had mediums left over for the race. If they did get behind, they could always double stop them and get the medium tyres in and undercut the Red Bulls. It was genius foresight by Mercedes. Yeah, a powerful undercut, but I think they were forced into going onto the softs for the initial phase of the Grand Prix because of the length of the start-finish straight. They knew that going down, if they were on the wrong tyre, Verstappen might be able to jump Lewis. As it happened, Verstappen, in quite a rubbered-in grid box, managed to get an equal launch to Lewis, chuck it in the slipstream, and go into the corner side-by-side side and push Hamilton wide and gain control of that corner. Things are looking a little bit iffy at the starts for Lewis at the moment if you're going to pick out a weakness in his current racing form. Yeah, he is starting to struggle again with the old starts. We saw that a few years ago when Lewis was talking about Rosberg and I think initially Bottas actually getting the jump on him at starts. You talk about the starts and qualifying, but Perez not being in that rear gunner position really left Red Bull exposed once they'd got in front. Yeah, that was a crucial element to it because I do believe that if Lewis had managed to get past Verstappen, I don't think Red Bull would have pit it straight away because you had Bottas as the rear gunner. And I do feel, although Bottas clearly doesn't like team orders, he would have done a bit better keeping Max behind than he did with Lewis. So not having Perez there is always going to be a struggle for Red Bull to really go for some obscure and wacky strategy calls and really push that aggressive nature that they tend to have when they have two drivers up there. Something that Horner picked on when he was speaking to the Sky team afterwards. If Paris had been there, the overspeed that Mercedes have, Lewis would have got past him straight away anyway. And if Bottas can't hold Lewis up that much, how could Paris do that? And Bottas can't even get a break. He can't even beat Lewis Hamilton at rock, paper, scissors. Who knows what they were playing rock, paper, scissors for, Ben. But again, that's got to be gutting. I would like to see who comes out on top over the course of the season. Can we get some more videos of that, please?
yeah, it'd be good to see all the drivers have to constantly play rock, paper, scissors every weekend. They'd be so competitive with it as well. If you told them it was worth an eighth of a point, they would be doing psychology lessons throughout the week. <laughs> I would love to see it. But Ben, I want to throw to you on something you touched on. Team orders. Is there anything controversial about Bottas racing Lewis Hamilton for position at that point in the race? Yes, 100%, because Bottas isn't delivering on track. As a Mercedes team, that's all about the team culture and all about equal responsibility and equal opportunity, is if you want a different strategy to someone that could possibly win the race and bring in more points for the team, you move out the way as quick as you can. I'll put something to you to maybe try and shake your opinion a little bit. We saw Lewis pass Bottas in a great move, not in DRS, one of the few passes that wasn't. So if Bottas had let Lewis pass on that lap, he'd have lost about two seconds of lap time. We saw a good battle. There was no coming together. And ultimately, Lewis got the pass done anyway. Look at the Nico versus Lewis battles. They fought for positions. They fought most of the time fairly. But the tension behind the scenes was one of the crucial points that Toto and Lewis and everyone else around the time mentioned and talked about. I know that Bottas still had this idea that he could race Verstappen and he was still within that sort of touching distance. I think it was about six or seven laps earlier. Bottas had been told on team radio that there was a possibility of catching up to Max. He wasn't. He didn't have the pace to compete with Max. And he was dropping off and he was dropping off at this stage. And we saw after Lewis got past him, he dropped like a second to two seconds back. Lewis saved Bottas's blushes this race by winning it. He lost seven tenths on that lap due to Bottas. And this was a time when he was gaining 1.5 to 2 seconds on Verstappen. If the race had finished a couple of laps sooner, Lewis wouldn't have caught Max. And we wouldn't be talking about this. Instead, we'd be saying Bottas has cost Mercedes points. We saw Bottas racing for the first time this year, but at the wrong moments. He should have been racing at the front. He should have made sure Leclerc never got past him. That is the moment he should have been racing. Moving on to the Battle of the Spaniards, Ben. We built it up pre-race, Alonso and Sainz. Both qualified higher than they ended up finishing. Sainz lost a place from 6th to 7th, and Alonso went from 10th to 17th. Is it a clear-cut case that Carlos Sainz, by only losing one place, was the winner of the Battle of the Spaniards? As I mentioned before in our podcast, it's all about points, George, and whoever brings home the points is the clear winner, and Sainz brought home the points for Ferrari, which are looking stronger week in, week out. Alonso, you've got to look at it and say it's been disappointing for him, but... Is it though? He was there or thereabouts on the one-stop strategy and it was a 50-50 for the teams whether to go one-stop or two-stop. They split the strategies down at Alpine and Ocon did well. He got into ninth place and Alonso on the last few laps, he lost like seven places. He was in 10th going into the 60th lap and then suddenly everyone came up behind him. I think Stroll got him and then Stroll got passed by Gasly and it all started happening, which was great to see. And we even saw Russell running in the points at one point as well, George. So that was nice to see for his British fans anyway. I need to create a new rival cult, Ben. And it's called Charles Leclerc Cult because he's just so good. <laughs> I really just every week relentlessly good at the moment. In qualify, he's always strong. And even when Sainz did out-qualify him, it wasn't by very much. I think it was by two places, fifth and seventh. He comes strong in the races. He certainly has, I think, a Ferrari A strategy blessing, but he deserves it. He puts in and gets the right things done at the right time that allow Ferrari to push him further up the race than I think maybe Sainz has been able to do so, so far at all races. Sainz has had really good moments, but Leclerc consistently gets that first lap gain on the car in front of him. At this time, we saw him go past Bottas, just opens up a world of possibilities and 
Wow, Charles Leclerc cult, I'm going to head it up. I'm going to take it to your Lando cult. Lando didn't have such a strong race, Ben. Ricardo beat Norris for the first time. What's going on with Lando Norris cult, Ben? Are you doing your ritual slaughters before the race? What's happened? Uh, we clearly didn't play our supplements to Zach Brown and the, the strategies down at McLaren because at the end of the day, you went on to the less favourable one-stop strategy for a vast majority of that race and then couldn't make up the time when they pitted him again to get any higher up the board. So, look, Danny Rick, he's a class act. We all knew that coming into it. And I think we're all excited to see the, the Norris-Ricardo battle that's going to unfold over the course of the season. And the fact that Norris has out-competed him, this is the first time that he's been outscored in terms of points is remarkable when you look at the the pedigree of the driver he's up against and it really sets down actually quite an interesting battle because you look at the teams that we've talked about there ferrari alpine and now mclaren those driver battles are really interesting because we saw alonso say afterwards that even if i drove at my 100 percent ability ocon still would have beaten me and i thought that was really interesting to get that insight and we've seen signs saying I'm coming back and coming back stronger, but you know he's still behind Leclerc and he's still losing places from where he's qualified. And Leclerc's doing exceptionally well in that Ferrari. And we've seen Norris beforehand do really well, and then he's had a bit of a bad weekend. But Danny Rick coming good and showing the confidence in the car again. You know what? This driver dynamic that's unfolding, George, it's exciting to watch, isn't it? It's much more exciting than the Perez versus Verstappen battle for sure, because Perez seems to be really struggling. And anyone that goes into those cars always going to struggle against Max and Lewis, aren't they? So. You know what, these driver combinations in the midfield where the points are so tight and we have to wait until the last few laps and know who's going to finish in the points. Mate, it's interesting. It's a great season, isn't it? I think it will carry on being good as well because McLaren and Ferrari have shifted towards a 2022 priority. And Ferrari have come out and said they've gone from 90% focus on 2022 to 95% focus on 2022. They're happy with where they are in the midfield and they know with their drivers they're competitive enough to get that extra place in constructors, vie for third or guaranteed fourth, it would seem they're happy with that. And they're happy with the cars being close. So plenty more excitement there. I just want to have a quick word myself on Ocon. Strong again, brilliant in qualifying, proving us wrong. Alonso's comment is huge, huge. I, I think he's really shutting down that potential Gasly move we were talking about. We didn't have any backing for that. It just felt in the paddock chitter-chatter that it was on the cards. If Ocon keeps this off for the rest of the season, I think Russell will still have first dibs on that Mercedes seat. But it wouldn't surprise me if when Hamilton or Bottas are both gone, that he does actually cement himself as that second driver. I also have a great story for you, Ben. The other day, I was out in Putney and I thought, I need a curry. So I looked up at a nice curry house. It's called the Holy Cow. A bit expensive, but it was a good curry. Go to the shop and the guy behind the counter, he has an Alpine Formula One cap on. I didn't think Alpine fans existed yet. I didn't think there was enough time. So I asked him, are you a genuine Alpine fan? And he was like, yeah, I, I really like them. I was Renault before I'm an Alpine now. That is a rare sighting. I thought I had to get this in at some point to tell you. Hang on, does this mean we've got another rival court? Has he got like the, the Ocon court going, George? <laughs> There's too many courts going around F1 now. I feel like we need to cut this down and uh, really marginalise any other court. I told him I was a Lewis fan and I was unhappy with the size of my garlic naan, so perhaps he deliberately ripped it in half before he put it in my takeaway bag. I want to talk about the team that are really embodied by the Korma Ben, Aston Martin. I mean, Alpine are a Jal Frazy. We've got Vindaloo out the front, but this team, Lance Stroll started an 11th, finished an 11th. 
Vettel had a bit of a boring race, if I'm honest. What's happening there? Are they focused on 2022 now or are they going to try and make up these places? I think they're obviously going to focus more on 2022. But at the same time, you look at it and go, was it such a boring race? Going into the last few laps, they were there or thereabouts again for points. We had Stroll pushing up to ninth. We had him fighting with Alonso and then going off track and having to give the place back and the controversy that happened with that because he didn't go around the bollards. I know it's all race regulations and it's all boring talk to the outsider, but at the same time, I was loving it and I really enjoyed the battle that was unfolding in front of my eyes just as Bottas came up from that group and was trying to get past them all. It was a really exciting moment where I didn't know what was going to happen and I genuinely thought someone was going to crash. I thought these last few laps are going to come through under the safety car. So for me, they're a bit more like a biryani. You know, sometimes you're happy with one. You've got a bit of spice in there, a bit more whole and complete, but perhaps you're looking for something else in the future. <laughs> okay, and I'm looking at the back. Talk about a bit of a red hot chili flash in the pan, Ben. Yuki Tsunoda was all over the place for the entire weekend and, dare I say, a bit immature on the radio. What did you make of his qualifying and his race and his comments on the radio? I think with Tsunoda, it's one of those where he's come in and he's been a revelation for the paddock with his bubbly energy. But you've got to remember, emotions are going to start running high. And he's going to say some things which are going to be controversial. We saw that with a lot of young drivers coming through. I think anything he says, take with a pinch of salt. I reckon he's still a class driver. I still feel like he will start performing once he gets settled down again. But someone just needs to take him aside and just have a few quiet words, try and build his confidence back up, to make sure he doesn't feel the whole world's against him. But at the moment, it does feel like, you know what, that chili's just a bit hotter than you thought it was and it's starting to explode in your mouth and you're running around the room and you're screaming for someone to give you some milk or some beer or, or someone to try and cool it down. And you've got that panic on it. It's someone else's fault. It's never your fault. You never told me this chili was that hot. <laughs> That's the idea I've got with him. If we're carrying on the old curry-themed revelations at the end of the day, you can't say over the radio that your team's given a car. That's better to your teammate. That's not right. You know it's not true as well. So you need to move on from it. Not just on radio. He said it in a press conference afterwards. He was pressed on it and sort of admitted that it couldn't be true, but he felt that it was. Kobayashi, in his Beyond the Grid episode, said after the first race performance that the most important thing for Yuki Tsunoda was good management because there were going to be times at AlphaTauri where he would need wise management to help and steer him through his career. He's not getting that at the moment. I was really appalled. Crazy, crazy. A note on his teammate, though, Pierre Gasly, nicking that last point. Got to be happy with that, Ben. AlphaTauri need to nick all those points they can get at the moment. Are you still worried about his long-term future, though? I think he's still got a future in F1, even if it's not at, at Red Bull, personally. I don't see him staying at Red Bull for the long term. When you consider that, he's putting in performances where he's putting himself in the shop window. You keep delivering, people will start looking at you as a driver to hopefully take the team forward, perhaps like Williams. If Russell goes to Mercedes, perhaps Williams will look at him and hopefully Williams can put in a better package over the next few years. So you never know what options can arise over the city seasons that do unfold at F1. We all had that triggered with Vettel leaving last time and Effin started collapsing on us and we thought it was just a massive domino effect. Gasly's putting in performances which are unnotable. They're good, but you know they're not scoring the high points that they should have done earlier on. They've scored points at a track which actually they should have struggled at. So it's almost a role reversal where I'm actually a lot happier despite the fact he's scoring less points now than he was in the first few races because he's come out of a track that he struggled at and Alpha Tori and done well. Looking further down the grid though, George, what were your thoughts on Williams, Haas and Alfa Romeo? Well, our writer, Mango Chutney and Nan 
are staple for Formula One. And I love dipping into them. And I love using Haas as that little dip. Mick Schumacher does go well with a little bit of mango chutney. But overall, it was a bit stale. Uh, Giovinazzi didn't do anything particularly impressive. I know it's hard in that Alfa Romeo at the moment. But if it's hard, beat your teammate. Raikkonen's there for a hobby. So he's got to be at least equal to Raikkonen to keep in F1. Mazepin and Haas didn't have a great day again. Maybe some controversy with getting out of the way for blue flags again with Haas, which wasn't great. But it was good to see Gunter Steiner defend the drivers afterwards. What did you think about those bottom three teams at what was quite an uneventful race for them? Uneventful, but we did see Russell again running some points. And Alfa Romeo and Williams, both drivers finished above Alonso, which I wouldn't have thought would have happened based on my previous predictions going into the race weekend which Zach, my friend, pointed out to me and didn't let go. He was like, oh, great call on the Alonso prediction. I was like, yeah, cheers for that, mate. I hope everyone would have forgotten about that. <laughs> so that's gone well for me. Yeah, like you said, there's no, it's a bit of a non-eventful race for them. Hard to get past both teams, but it was great to see Steiner standing up for his drivers and him coming over and saying, actually, Toto shouldn't be in control of the grid, putting on this conspiracy theory that he's doing mind tricks to control and then saying, look, you've got to build up your drivers up to knock them down at points. And perhaps that's what we're seeing with Mick Schumacher's engineer, where he's going, you had a great race, Mick. Don't you worry about it. Oh, you spun. Don't you worry about it. You're doing well. And, you know, got rewarded last race by passing Latifi. So I think that's the key for Haas. Can they beat Latifi? Because I don't think they're going to catch Russell the Alfa Romeo's. So they just need to put in some performances like that and develop for next year. And Steiner is probably the best person you want for that because he'll tell him some hard, hard truths. But looking at the whole weekend, George, I want to know who stood out for you during qualifying? Who was your qualifier of Barcelona? Well, as much as Esteban Ocon impressed me with a superb sixth place, it is hard to look past Lewis Hamilton getting his 100th pole position. Sickeningly good. He's just so good on a Saturday. It's hard to believe that in some archive footage from 2007, before he came into Formula One, he didn't even think he was that good at qualifying. He said, oh, I used to finish third or fourth, never got the pole, and has come in and smashed that record. A great little stat here for you, Ben. Before Lewis Hamilton had even moved to Mercedes, he had 26 pole positions for McLaren. That's good enough now for 10th on the all-time record. If you get rid of him, 9th. And if you got rid of people at the time that hadn't even set pole positions yet, he was joint 7th with Mika Hakkinen. Insane. That's incredible. He's just a freak, isn't he? You talk about these freak sportsmen and he's just one of them up there with the best. The level of performance and particularly in the, the shootout format has just brought that pressure and he, better than any driver, can deliver purple under pressure. Who was your driver of the day? If I could give it to a race strategy, I'd give it to Mercedes hands down. They were by far and away the best strategies going into this. Ricardo did well to keep Perez behind him as long as he did. Performed really well on the Sunday, got some solid points from McLaren, outscored Norris for the first time. And although there's some great performances by again Hamilton and Leclerc and Verstappen even, I still think Ricardo stood out to me as the best performer on the day. But I certainly wasn't fancy team director of the day. A disappointing 106 points for me at Barcelona. You've now got a 135 point gap. Who was your standout points deliverer in your team? Verstappen, weirdly enough, because he gave me 41 points for finishing second, outperforming his teammate, having a really good race weekend across the board. 
Leclerc did well for me. And having Red Bull as my constructor with Perez finishing in the top five, getting me some solid points. I just think my team's just very balanced at this point. Norris didn't have a bad weekend, still got me some good points. Ocon got me some points. And Russell doing me well with 10 points. I was so happy with my team, George. I don't know what went wrong with you. Did all the wheels come off? Who did you select and who do you regret selecting? Sticking with Yuki Tsunoda was a big mistake. Minus 14 points, Ben. Painful, painful, painful. He's out. Until he matures a little bit, I can't deal with the yo-yo Sonoda much longer. And also Alpine. Fernando Alonso's really poor race cost Alpine a lot of points. We'd seen their really brilliant upgrades in Portugal. I was hoping they'd carry on and Alonso with a bit more buoyant form of being in front of those home fans might deliver some higher points. I think McLaren would have been a better strategy for me there. Also, I could have maybe had a little look at Mick Schumacher, which I flirted with. I didn't go for it. I regret it. He got seven points, but think of what I could have done with that extra points advantage to spend on replacing Sonoda. Ocon only got nine points. Mick Schumacher, seven. There's definitely something to be said for having Mick Schumacher in at the moment. Overall in our league, We've still got Jim C out in front. He delivered a solid 166-point race. But the gap behind me is getting closer, Ben. We've got Christopher G on 532. Jack Aviado on toast with Zachary's team. And we've also got Thomas Team 1. Bit of a boring name, Thomas, but he is right in the mix. So make sure you guys keep playing and let us know what your strategies are. I'm certainly struggling to get to grips on some of these tracks. Perhaps you guys have got some tips for me. Let us know at F1 Into the Barrier. And speaking of getting in touch with us, it was great to hear from Dan. And he asked me a question, which I gave my answers to. And I now want to put to you, George, because I'd be quite intrigued to see what you'd say to this. He said, I'm not really that big a fan of F1. I wasn't really about rugby either, but I started watching rugby last year during the lockdown. I got really into it after a few great games. And he said to me, what would be the races that you would say, sit down and watch and you'll fall in love with F1? And I thought, I narrowed down to top three. So I was interested to see what your choices would be. Oh, Ben, that's such a good question. I think I'm going to try and throw him some races. Oh, there's so many coming to my mind. Okay, first up, Japan 2005, Kimi Raikkonen comes back from 16th, 17th of the grid to take an incredible victory and really cemented so many fans' love for the Iceman. Going forward in time, Brazil 2008, where my love for Lewis Hamilton started and he got that amazing title with Massa in tears at the end of the race. You can't look past a Jensen Button wet race masterclass in Canada 2011. Superb. And I suppose Sebastian Vettel, his third championship, Brazil 2011, another wet race, just incredible. And then I'll get a bit greedy, Ben. I'm going to give another Hamilton race, his seventh world title, Turkey last year, Turkey 2020. Wow, just insane. Maybe a bit controversial. I've tried to choose races that I can really vividly remember. I do remember bits and bobs pre-2005, Ben, but they're all glimmers of Schumacher and Hakkinen fighting it out. That's my list for Dan. I mean, you did certainly get greedy there, George, because I only asked for your top three, but there we are. There was a lot to choose from. I had similar thoughts myself, but I did look across F1 as a period, and I thought what made me really fall in love with F1 was the Senna versus Prost fight. I said straight up it should be 1989 Suzuka, and I'm sure you'd agree with me that what a race, what a controversy. We still talk about it to this day. What was the intentions? Who knows what was going on at that point in time? And you saw my favourite driver of all time, Prost, get his championship win over Senna. Only lost to one teammate in his entire time, and that was against Nicky Lauda by half a point. That's how good he was, George. So I had to get that in. 
and you know me and Prost. I don't know why. The professor, he just edges it for me. But Lewis, he's creeping up there and he's, you got to love the guy. And 2008 was up there. Along with the 2011 Montreal Canada win for Button. Most dramatic win of all time. Very similar thoughts. I was just quite intrigued to see what else you would throw out there. If you do have any questions like that, we'll always be happy to provide the best answers we can think of on the spot. So grab your new barges for our next podcast, where we look forward to the Monaco Grand Prix, where hopefully things get a bit spicy. Yeah.